Hello and welcome to Little Gold Men, the podcast from Vanity Fair and Panoply that proves that award season is a year-round event. I'm Katie Rich, the deputy editor of VanityFair.com, and in our New York studio is our digital director, Mike Hogan. Hey, Katie. And our film critic, Richard Lawson. Hello. And over in Oakland is our senior writer, Joanna Robinson. Hello. Richard, it's so good to have you back on this continent. I hope that uh, the decompression from France hasn't been too terrible. It's been fine other than, I mean, the, the, the great thing about flying back west is that you wake up really early and you're just like ready to start the day. So that's good. Um, but the weather here sucks, man. I mean, France was 75 <laughs> and sunny every day. And it's now. With, yeah, anyway. I think the sun died at some point. <laughs> that's why Trump stopped <laughs> tweeting last night. Just, <laughs> exactly. Anyway. We're going to share on this episode a, an interview that Rebecca Keegan did with Claire Foy, the star of The Crown, and we're also going to get into the week's big new release, Wonder Woman. Uh, but before any of that, I wanted to just briefly look back on Cannes a little bit, because Richard, we talked about it last week while you were still there, but on Monday, you published kind of a wrap-up of what you learned from Cannes this year and kind of the general vibe of it being a bummer in some way that might be uh, kind of overstating it. But uh, why, why did you come away from this year's Cannes feeling kind of more drained than you have in the past? Well, I think it was a combination of a couple of things. One being that... Alcoholism. Well, yeah. No, I'm sorry. <laughs> did I say that? Yeah, you know, the, 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 the bathtub full of rosé I right. bathed myself in mm-hmm. regularly didn't help. And just a general sort of French ennui. But um, <laughs> no, I think it was partly the political temper of both France and the United States and the world. And, and so that certainly, you know, and, and then Manchester happened kind of halfway through the fe- festival. Not that we should be like, oh, Manchester ruined Cannes. I mean, that's an absurd. <laughs> Who cares about Cannes ultimately? But like, you know, that happened and it just p- sort of like put in perspective, like, you know, wh- what are we doing here? You know, and then you add that, add to that a really heightened security which involved lots of guys with huge guns everywhere, metal detectors at every checkpoint, which, you know, I guess, you know, the French felt necessary given, you know, the terrorist attacks they've suffered recently. But it just kind of was this constant reminder of, you know, potential looming danger and political strife. And then add to that the movies, which a lot of which, you know, a lot of them were really dark and kind of pessimistic about the times we live in. The the thing, the essay that I wrote on Monday, like it was kind of just like I was at least hoping for movies that, didn't offer a, a solution exactly, but some sense of like hope or sort of, you know, and a couple of movies like Okja um, and Beast Per Minute did that. But like it was a lot of, you know, the kind of Michael Haneke, just like the world is a dark, miserable place and we're all, you know, <laughs> bad people. <laughs> so what does it mean for us who kind of watch Can to see the rest of the film year play out? Like, what does it mean for us when a can is kind of an off year. Like, are we going to have to start looking forward to like Telluride and some maybe studio movies to determine Oscar season? Or are these maybe going to feel more important when you're not uh, surrounded by guys with giant guns in France? That's a good question. I mean, you never really know. I think that can, um, I think I mentioned a couple weeks ago, is usually a good kind of proving ground for a couple of the best foreign language film nominees. And I think we've probably seen one or two of those come out of Cannes. Uh, the movie that won the Palme d'Or, the, the Square, the Ruben Oslin film, you know, that, that could be a contender, certainly. His last movie, Force Majeure, was cruelly not nominated for an Oscar when it should have been. But yeah, I think that another, yet another reason why the festival felt a little bit muted this year uh, was because for our own cynical purposes, there just wasn't that Carol, there wasn't a Sicario, there wasn't a Hell or High Water, there wasn't a move, a, a kind of English language movie that felt like, okay, here we go, the Oscar season has kicked off. There wasn't a Loving, and even though Loving was a pretty quiet movie, it did ride some momentum all the way to a Best Actress but nomination. even if you continue that, like Foxcatcher, wasn't Brooklyn, wasn't Brooklyn a Cannes movie too? It might have passed through there, yeah. I mean... Yeah. Captain Fantastic was... Cap- was like there, even the ones that do become Oscar talk are seldom like actually have any chance of winning. Oh, you sure. know what I mean. Yeah, it's, yeah, it tends yeah. to be that like six, seven, eight 
slot or 789 slot in Best Picture. So, yeah, I don't know. Well, for whatever that's worth. I think just because of timing, it's just a little early. It's a little early. You get a Woody Allen movie now and then, although I think that his his run may be over. I think the Oscar-y run, yeah. Um, You know, and the timing is odd and also just like... there's a certain kind of taste level thing that, you know, or not level, but just a different perspective on movies and that the Academy has versus what the Cannes Selection Committee has. Right. You know, so they, they do throw in some, you know, big name American and British things that, that will be in the Oscar conversation. But you're right, Mike, that a sort of palm door to best picture winner. I mean, that's I don't I can't think of the last time that's happened. I think the last best picture, the last palm door winner to be nominated was a more in yeah. 2012 so it's it's a weird little it, it, there's a weird relationship between can and the oscars but it's not totally surprising to me having not seen any of the films you're talking about caveat there it's not totally surprising to me that this would be a year of confusion for the sort of global and especially european elite right because this whole populist movement is sort of like a strain of a disease that breaks out once it figures out how to beat all the antibodies, you know, like, yeah. like it's the, it's the reaction to the globalist kind of sophisticated point of view that was basically, you know, defined can for the past 25 years. And so of course people are just like, what the hell's going on? Like there's all they're trying to do now is like, is like, I don't know what they're they're they don't even know what to do I think that that I hope that by next year people have started to figure out okay here's how we fight back effectively rather than just whining on Twitter all day or glooming you know being gloomy all day with our uh, (laughs) here's a here's a fun bit of trivia the last time a Palme d'Or winner won best picture was 1955 when Ernest Borgnine's Marty picked up the both prizes and that was the first year they did the Palme d'Or so not not since the first Palme d'Or has it also won Best Picture? Wow! So well, we're due for a Marty reboot or something. Marty, man. yeah. Um, <laughs> Ernst Borgnine. These these bodies, these institutions, whether it's the Academy or Cannes or whatever, they are somewhat slow to react. And so this was kind of just that weird little middle limbo year, I think. Yeah. And I think you're right that, I, and I hope so that next year. I mean, hopefully the world will be a better place, but I don't know, doesn't seem likely at this point. But by next year, you know, the films will have been made that have sort of had a little more time to sort of contemplate all of this stuff. Well, and, and by and the way, it takes two it. years probably to make a film, well, anyway, exactly. at least yeah. two to three years. So think, these yeah. might even be, these films might even be the hangover of like people just sort of moaning about Obama, Merkel era stuff, mm-hmm, you mm-hmm. know, and so it feels irrelevant too. It's just like, what are we even, why am I sitting here watching this? Like this isn't where it's at. Right. Yeah. I mean, you know, Yorgos Lanthimos' film, The Killing of Sacred Deer, you know, which some people did like, I really didn't care for it all. You know, this kind of just like, but if you think about it, the world's pretty fucked up. And you're like, well, we know that. Like, right. it's evidently. But like when he made that mil- film, it was a different, you're right, political, temp, you know, kind of milieu. So, so yeah, I think next year, I mean, I think that the, the Sundance oftentimes has the fastest turnaround time because like there are little independent movies that can be made that summer and then be ready for Sundance right, in the winter. Right, three weeks. Right. But like with Cannes movies, they're a little more considered and not that Sundance movies aren't, but you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I think maybe the most telling thing that you mentioned is that all of these European films are going to really be reflecting the migrant crisis for a long time. And that's something that's not really about Trump or anything really political, but just kind of this global, large scale thing. So it feels like even if, you know, the world's a better place or some problems get fixed, it it does feel like Europe is facing this gigantic issue that isn't going to really improve in time for next year's can or the one after. 
Yeah, and I think that something that is interesting about the way that these films, whether they're at Cannes this year or there was a lot of stuff last year that dealt with the refugee crisis um, in Europe, is these are filmmakers who are really, you know, kind of addressing a lot of moral failings on the part of the Euro- European society, you know? And I, I don't think that we see an, an, as much of that in the United States in terms of how we deal with our immigration issues and various, and our, you know, adventurism overseas. We have films that sort of kind of talk about it and, 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 and are critical of it. But, I mean, Europe is being very, I mean, European filmmakers anyway, are being very hard on themselves for good reason about the way that this, this, crisis, this massive crisis has been dealt with, you know, whether it's a film like Jupiter's Moon, which is this Hungarian kind of like supernatural action film that was in the main competition that dealt with it that way. Or you have the Hanukkah just kind of being like, you know, the bourgeoisie are awful pigs and, you know, they're just always going to be that way. But like, there, it was dealt with from a lot of different angles. And that was interesting, kind of the more I think about it in retrospect. It was just the being there f- and just seeing movie after movie that was either about how Russia's corrupt and awful or how, you know, Europeans are ignoring the plight of, you know, the millions of, you know, displaced people, etc. It was just like, oh, could we just get like... You know, then I, you know, then I would go see Juliette Binoche in a nice romantic comedy, and that was like a nice little palate cleanser. But it was, it was, it was a lot to process in one two week setting. So, if there's anything that, uh, like, w- w- the one movie that we should like be watching out for, that critical response these can movies will emerge throughout the fall, kind of compared to what comes out. But kind of for your money, what's the thing that uh, some Oscar obsessives should look out for? As far as Oscars go, I would put most of my money on the Florida Project, which is Sean Baker's follow up to Tangerine. Um, I think it. I don't think that it's quite big or accessible enough for um like a best picture run. But who knows? I mean, you know, Beasts Beasts of the Southern Wild also dealt with a little kid and sort of a southern milieu. You know, the, the tones are very different. But but I think that the movie's best bet is a, a nice little supporting actor nod for Willem Dafoe, who plays this very kindly put upon um you know manager at this motel where a lot of people. Are sort of semi-permanently living um, and he just kind of deals with uh, problem tenants who are who you know in an affectionate but stern way and it's just it's a nice performance he doesn't get a ton to do but as a representative of a really widely you know widely regarded you know movie like it's highly regarded movie i think that he could be in the conversation depending on how the rest of the year shakes out willem dafoe's last nomination was in 2001 so uh overdue in some way <laughs> the 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 can knew the news that has sort of broken why beyond people who pay attention to the film festival is, of course, like Jessica Chastain's closing comments about the representation of women at the festival. Richard, did it strike you as any different from any other can you've been to or, you know, or or do you agree in any way with, with what Jessica said? Well, no, I mean, I, I totally knew where she was coming from. And I think, you know, she said something like, I've, I've never watched 20 movies in two weeks before and or 10 days before and you know for some you know i'm i'm kind of used to that from festivals but a lot of people aren't and it's that can be a lot to process and yeah she's right there were a lot of movies where something brutal happened to a woman or it was alluded to or they were used or whatever you know and and i think that that's a larger i mean obviously if there had been more female directors more you know more female perspectives would have been seen in in the competition but also we still have a problem where even we're otherwise very talented creative guys uh, film male filmmakers the only thing they can think to do with a woman character is to have her be in peril or to be you know assaulted or something like that and it's just you know that thinking still has not evolved much which is and, and i was glad she said something about that at that press conference when you're supposed to be sort of reverential about the process and she and 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 the films and she really was like you know what there i saw good stuff but and it was a big yeah. but so do you think that's worse in 
European films than the American films? Or I think it can be. Yeah, yeah I don't want to stereotype, but yeah. I mean, I think that, you know, it, this is a completely unrelated anecdote, but it's a, just a funny little can story that sort of relates. So, you know, you go see these movies, you write reviews, you do all that stuff, but sometimes you have a free afternoon and you can go on a yacht and taste very expensive cognac, which is something that I did toward the end of the festival with two colleagues from New York Magazine. And it was a quick little half hour jaunt out to the boat and then back. And we were greeted on the boat by this very dapper kind of guy, maybe late 30s, French, had lived in New York City, so you know, spoke very um, very good English. And he is some brand emissary from this cognac, King Louis Thirteenth <laughs> cognac, which is like $3,000 a bottle. It's insane. Uh-huh. Anyway, so seemed like a very progressive, enlightened guy, lives in Paris, you know, goes to film festivals, whatever. And it was me, me and a male colleague and then uh, a woman who, uh, you know, writer who uh, I'm friendly with. And the way that he talked to her about like, you know, kind of giving her permission to try cognac as a woman and all this stuff. I was just like, oh, the Europeans, man, there's there, there's a different kind of chauvinism at work there than there is in America. So I think that that trickles into all manner of things. Well, whether, they just you know, don't really buy into the notion of progress at anywhere near the level that Americans right. do. Right. You know? I mean, so it's anyway. Wow. Yeah, so that was kind of I, I feel like our iTunes reviews from Europe are going to be really nuts this week. I know. <laughs> Hashtag not all European. All right. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> we're stereotyping, and yet we're, we might be right. Yeah. I mean, you know, it was, it was, it, 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 this was something that was evident in some of the worst films I saw there and some of the best. I mean, the, the, the film that won the Palme d'Or, while sort of partly about gender politics, like Elizabeth Moss is in that movie, and her role is just pretty, I mean, She's got one scene in particular that I really couldn't stand, but um, and then another scene that's great. So, uh, but yeah, even in the the anointed film, it, 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 there is some 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 problem there. So, Richard, one last thing because I just saw this tweet from uh, speaking of New York Magazine, Jada Yuan, who you know, uh, just wrote a piece saying uh, uh, Diane Kruger just made a very good case for an Oscar nomination. She won Best Actress for her role in In the Fade. Uh, did you see that movie? Do you do you think Jada's onto something there? Um, I mean, she might be, uh, you know, it's a German language performance. Um, it's so rare that we nominate foreign language performances. It happens every, you know, every only every couple of years, I feel like. Um, I did not see In the Fade because I did, I, I played a risky game. Uh, I didn't go to the first press screening because there's always a, a follow-up the next day and it was toward the very end of the festival. So I had plenty of time on my schedule. Um, tweets came out after the first screening, people saying it was hack work, like all this really negative stuff. And then, so I was like, "Oh, I don't need to see it. I'll, I'll catch a screening in New York at some point." You know, I'm, I like Diane Kruger, so I was curious about that. And then, so I didn't go to the follow-up screening, and then she won the damn thing. So I, you know, it, that's that's kind of like the can risk. I, I, I'm happy to say I did see the Palm Door winner this year, which is the first time I've been at Cannes when I've actually seen the movie that won. Uh, so I, that felt good. I'm, the curse is broken. But yeah, I mean, I think that sh- we should definitely keep an eye on her. I think that I don't know what how she's regarded by Amer the by the American Academy, but like, um, you know, I know that sh- internationally she's a pretty well beloved actress. So it'll be interesting to see if they even you know make a push for her. I, I would. I would assume that a that a, a you know a can best actress award means you'll get some sort of campaign. Well, we can look forward to that. I like Dan Kruger. I'm excited to see her kind of get something better than playing Helen of Troy in Troy. I read somewhere that this is her first German language film, which is sort of it's wait what? Impre- yeah, I I mean, oh, please fact check me, listeners, if I'm wrong. no. I did, just the fact that she's German and I I know I'm, and and so it's always interesting to see like someone someone who you think you understand what kind of actor they are and then you see them act in their actual like their native language you go oh my god i had no idea the depths that you had in you so um, i'm excited to see this yeah and it um led to a really sweet post on instagram from her ex joshua jackson 
He's the best ex, you know, yeah, in he's general, good. Pacey. Yeah. He's just, okay. <laughs> anyway. Yeah. When the Joshua Jackson renaissance comes, we'll, uh, we'll all be right here for it. <laughs> Well, from, I guess, canned Best Actress to another Wonder Woman. I feel like that's a fun transition that I just came up with. Wonder Woman is the big new movie that's out this week. And Joanna and Richard, you guys have both seen it. Joanna, you might be able to speak a little bit to not only uh, the quality of the movie, but kind of the incredible pressure that's been put on it on the internet and then on the backlash on the internet and basically how many eyeballs there are on this superhero movie that maybe uh, has to stand for a lot more than just a movie on its own. Yeah, you know, it's it's the all-female Ghostbusters redux, only with the added pressure of we haven't had a female-fronted superhero in 12 years, and we've never had a female front, like a Wonder Woman solo movie. So um, there's all, all these cultural pressures of like, can a woman open a summer blockbuster? Um, can a woman lead a comic book movie and sort of play in this boon time for comic book stories? Marvel waited a very long time before announcing that they were going to do a female-fronted film, and, and in the arms race of it all, uh, DC, Warner Brothers beat them to the punch with Wonder Woman. So there's all of that sort of question around it. And then, of course, there was this silly extra flap that came up last week when the Alamo Drafthouse in Austin announced that it was going to have an all-female, one all-female screening of Wonder Woman, which sold out. They added another. The Alamo New York added another. And then it just became so politicized. And I don't know if there was a way this movie opening wouldn't have been politicized, but that very silly drama, which I'm not saying silly to dismiss it because I was definitely like in the trenches punching about it, but it has nothing to do with the actual film itself, right? Has has just enhanced the political atmosphere around the film. And then there's all this pressure on Warner's in term of in terms of this franchise of theirs, the Justice League franchise that they launched this huge, hugely ambitious slate that they launched without really having their feet under them first. You know, Marvel at least waited until they had a few films doing super well before they decided to take over the world. And of course, the critical backlash has been huge on Suicide Squad, on Batman v Superman, Dawn of Justice, that has not really hurt the box office that much for Warners, but I think they would really like something that the critics like as well as the people whatever they say uh, in the press. And, uh, you know, they're certainly getting it so far with Wonder Woman in terms of uh, reviews. The reviews have been very glowing. And so we will see if the box office is as healthy as they're hoping it is. So about reviews, Joanna and Richard, where do you guys come along with the critical consensus that's emerging? I think people want this movie to, to be good and do well, you know, because it's it's led by a woman. It's also directed by a woman, you know, which is super, which is entirely rare for a superhero movie. I think it's good. I don't think it's great. One of the sort of most remarkable things about it is how kind of unremarkable it is in a way. It's like, oh yeah, it's like a good, solid superhero movie and it stands shoulder to shoulder with a lot of other ones and, you know, it, it it's, it's it's sort of seamless. It doesn't feel, you know, out of the ordinary or, or anything like that, which I think is good, you know, because it, it's supposed to fit into a broader texture. I think it's certainly, I like it better than the other DC movies. I think it's a solid Marvel movie and a great DC movie. I think, yeah, I think it's a big leap forward for DC in terms of quality. I I agree with Richard. I think it's fine. I would put it with like Captain America First Avenger fine, you know? It's still very painterly in the Zack Snyder aesthetic, even though he did not direct this film in a way that I 
don't personally love. And I also, I'm trying to figure out like sort of what I want in tone from a, from a comic book movie because, you know, Guardians of the Galaxy is obviously like hugely hilarious and fun with a, with a dose of human drama in it. And then Logan, which was my favorite comic book movie so far this year is, is very gritty and serious. And then Wonder Woman is, is sort of, dour and serious of course because it's like a war movie and and it's it's very upsetting in a lot of ways and and then they tried to put in some lightness i think to combat their the warner brothers reputation of all of our movies are bummers um but it it just tone wise it didn't like a lot of the comedy beats didn't work for me except for everything that chris pine did which was fabulous gal gadot is great i mean she's really great she looks great um she just is great and i was talking to a a well-known san francisco film critic but you know whatever that means in the in the ranking of critics but she had never heard of gal gadot i was like oh i guess you've never seen a fast and furious movie but she was blown away so i feel like there's a lot of people who are going to feel like they've discovered gal gadot in this movie even though she's been around for a while chris pine is great and david lewis is having is having a moment he's very well cast in this role and so um yeah there's a lot to like but i i wasn't like my socks were not knocked off and i agree with richard i don't want to be super cynical but i think a lot of people wanted this to be good are really rooting for a female fronted film and I guess just saw more in it than I did. I, I just, I thought it was fine. I will say, Joanna, about the humor, I think that, you know, it's it's unfortunate, but there's a lot of kind of fish out of water stuff with Diana being in, you know, the, sort of the world of men. Like, unfortunately, we, we've seen in Thor, like two Thor movies now, you know, so, it, and it's the same kind of tone of like, she's from this like different time and, you know, has a sword and speaks and, you know, and, and it's her clashing with kind of modern vernacular or modern in, you know, the early 1900s in her case. But, and it's just like, oh, it's funny, but it just feels like a retread, which is, you know, they couldn't help that. But, uh, uh and yeah, and we've seen it with Captain America too, like being out of man out of time, right? And, um, and there's, you know, I will not spoil for you, but the ending, is very there's there's something in the war ending that's very similar to the way that a that a marvel movie ended that i was just like okay yeah i have seen this before and uh, like the the lightness the comedy of errors of diana sort of bumbling around london just didn't work well tone wise with this like a dramatic charge across no man's land that happens later in the film you know what i mean it's just like you know i feel like you can either be a light funny marvel film or a dark dc film but but to try to combine the two at least they haven't found the perfect combination yet i know that joss whedon has been called into sort of not not just because of the recent very sad family tragedy in in Zack Snyder's family but joss whedon was already working on justice league to sort of punch it up uh but you know before he sort of had to step into the director's chair for for Zack Snyder so it really does feel like they're trying to do a, if you can't beat them, join them thing with Marvel. They were trying to be the the antithesis, and now they're like, yeah, it's not working for us. But I don't think that they've really made that transformation or figured out how to blend their house style with uh, some of the Marvel lightness that that we kind of we do want in our summer blockbusters. So, so I guess my question about the quality of it is it is it good enough like are we is this going to be enough for people to say female superhero movies work female directors work God could, we'll have one woman franchise like are we gonna are we, are we skating by with this and maybe the next one woman can be better i i think the narrative is going to be contingent entirely on the box office receipts 
honestly. And and that's too bad. But I really do think it's just going to depend both here and around the world, whether people show up for Wonder Woman. And, um, you know, because the Ghostbusters, the Ghostbusters thing was such a mess before it opened. But when it opened in the box office so anemic, that sort of just ended, you know, the debate. It was just sort of like, let's put this this particular film to bed. And so I, I really do think that the box office is going to make or break Wonder Woman at this point, though it like it's certainly off to a strong start given the positive reviews. But it's insane to me that, you know, in the in the era of review aggregation of Rotten Tomatoes, it's insane to me that this is being called the best reviewed comic book film of all time when it is just so far from the highest quality comic book film we've ever had, you know? So wait, is it really the best reviewed of all time? That can't be. I believe the headline, I just double checked my Diane Kruger fact and that was correct. So I'm feeling confident again <laughs> to say. Um, <laughs> it's the best reviewed superhero film since Marty. since Ernest Borgnine put put down the cape Um, that um, Marvel or DC film I believe it is the best reviewed Marvel or DC film are we not counting like the Dark Knight that's that was the main thing I thought of Anyway, this is this is inside baseball. <laughs> I just, I'm baffled. No, by but this. it but it matters because that's a headline. That's a headline people are seeing. That's a headline people are repeating. You know what I mean? I've heard it out in the wild. Did you know that this is the best review? And I was like, yeah, but okay, yeah, it is. Sure, it's got the highest percentage, maybe. But but that never takes into account the, the actual substance of the reviews. You know, I, I know. You know, and like <laughs> I I have this problem where you know Rotten Tomatoes has emailed me and said, hey, we ha- we don't we have we can't decide if this is fresh or rotten, and because it's like kind of a middle review. And it's like, and I write back. I'm like, you know what? You decide. I I don't like making that decision. I hate that binary. Oh man. Um, you know. So, and I think that you really see the failings of a kind of 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 assessing a movie based on its you know tomato meter score when stuff like this, where it's like you know whatever you know the review that I post on VF.com will be lukewarm to positive, but it's just going to go right in the in the fresh you know add to the 97. percent You know. All right. So, at the risk of opening an un pleasant topic yeah. how much pressure is there on reviewers to call this the greatest movie ever because of the political issues around it being directed by a woman i, I, no, I mean i think that's what richard and i were alluding to that like people really either want to or whatever i i certainly felt that as a like you know as someone who stumps for female representation in sort of geek quote-unquote properties and and you know the the really boring phrase of strong female character and all of that i was sitting in a theater i was like god i really want to like this more than i like it and i just i like it fine and i don't hate it but i just like it fine and i know that there are going to be people out there who read me and listen to me who want me to like it more who want me to say yes wonder woman is the best movie ever and uh, you know i i definitely f- think that women and men probably are, are feeling that that pressure I, i'm sure they are i mean they must be and i i do think that in, over the long haul having actual integrity is not only better for your own career but also for the actual art form mm-hmm. <laughs> because yeah. if if a bunch of people blow a bunch of smoke and people go and they're like this movie's not any good they ju- they only said it was good because of this political reason right. like that's not actually helpful long term yeah but in the short term you go you're probably going to get roasted when you post a lukewarm thing yeah and and I I hesitate to call it blowing smoke because I really don't think they're saying it's a great movie when it's a bad movie. I think they're saying it's the best movie when it's a good movie. Right? Do you know? Yeah. And, well, that's um, a form yeah, of blowing smoke. Yeah, I would say. <laughs> <laughs> like a gentle, yeah. gentle I, I, wisps of smoke. You know. I think something that's interesting about Wonder Woman, like uh, the, the the movie, is that it does it does reference its sort of you know the fact that it is a female lead. Um, 
throughout the movie here and there, like, you know, stuffy British men saying, why is there a woman in this room? You know, kind of stuff like that. But, um, but by and large, the kind of thematic oomph of the movie is about, you know, the decency of humanity and, you know, are, 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 are people prone to violence regardless of any sort of divine intervention? You know, like it's, it's about things other than it's kind of, you know, the feminism that that's kind of uh, implicit in it. And I think that the movie might have more of a kind of exciting charge to it if it more directly addressed that. But then at the same time, then it becomes that sort of standalone sore thumb, like, oh, that's the one about women's stuff. And it's, you know, right. Uh, so it, it, they, they had a, I think Patty Jenkins and, you know, the, the writer, like they, they had a tricky kind of thing to walk and yeah. I think they do it, but what it kind of ends up resulting in is a sort of like, it's just an unremarkable movie. It's like, oh, yep, it's just another superhero origin well, story. I you feel know? like I personally, I know that this is not necessarily a popular opinion in this group, but like, I can't wait for this trend to be over. I find I can't think of a more boring thing than another superhero movie. Yeah, and the this it's the same character arc every single time. Yeah. It makes you know uh, the brothers Grimm look like Virginia Woolf, <laughs> and. Oh <my> <laughs> It's like, so if all we're trying to do now is be like, women can do it just as well as men. It's like, should should women bother doing it? Can we just do something else with our time and money? (laughs) That's, yeah. yeah. I mean, I I agree with you, Mike, that it's all so bloated. And I I don't want, like, superhero comic book movies to go away, but I would like there to not be one every month. And, um, you know, I think there are some experiment uh, experimentations happening in the form. Like, Logan, I really do think is just a really great, movie and actually different as opposed to these other films that pretend to be different. But, you know, I mean, I, I don't think anyone in their right mind would say like, we need more, even more superheroes on top of the superheroes that we already have. Like, I, I agree with you on that. I just, um, I don't know. Uh, fact check <laughs> alert. Fact check alert. <laughs> Wonder Woman's at 97% on Rotten Tomatoes. Dark Knight was at 94%. Um, wow. Wow. Yeah. So, yeah, it's 97%. And I don't know. They, th- I think they said like it will be the best. Oh yeah, The Incredibles, which I guess they're counting as a superhero movie, which I guess it is, also has ninety seven percent. So it's tied with The Incredibles as the highest rated superhero movie of all time on Rotten Tomatoes. Broken metric. Because I bet you, <laughs> I, I bet you, if you read the Dark Knight reviews, there would be a lot more raves, uh, right? Than right. there would yeah. for, for Wonder Woman. Um, you know. A question for both Joanna and Richard. I like. I think you guys both encounter the uh, notoriously unhinged DC fans who tend to dominate the internet and have been. Uh, there's been the hubbub about the women only screenings. There's been uh, you know these people who kind of attack any critics. Are they? How are they reacting to critics actually liking Wonder Woman? It doesn't seem like they're going to take it well. Well, actually, you know it's weird. I haven't seen the rabid DC fans say like oh this is just a conspiracy you know or whatever it's more been people anticipating that being like oh i can't wait to read angry dc fans say you know it's just like we're we've we've gotten so caught up in this in this kind of this pattern and i just have to say that like how fucking predictable is it that like this thing about the Alamo draft house sp- uh, sprouted up and then you know going back to the ghostbuster stuff it's like these people just cannot let one of these movies by without without just acting like completely whiny babies. And it's just, you know, I don't know. I'm just sick of it. I'm just sick of it. That's all. Well, you're also paid by Marvel, Richard. So that's uh, well, yeah, part I of mean, your bias. Uh, that yacht I told you about where I was drinking cognac, that was my yacht. <laughs> <laughs> the reaction I have seen is that um, the D- of the DC, I mean, they really dislike me. And the thing that I have seen is that they 
they want Zack Snyder to get more credit for Wonder Woman than he's getting because oh, you know, great, Patty Jenkins yeah. directed, but Zack Snyder, I think, has a screenwriting credit. Cap he has a story Gal-Gal, credit. Like, um, and so they, um, they're angry that this is being seen as like, oh, if you take Zack Snyder off a DC movie, it actually is great, you know? And they're like, more justice for Zack Snyder. And, and that, you know, that's frustrating to me only because, you know, I'm sure Zack Snyder, ha- you can see if you watch the movie, if you've watched the movie and you've seen the 300, you can see that Zack Snyder had a hand in making this movie. But like, you know, let's let us do take this time to celebrate this female director having a triumph. Why not? Like, let you know, women have just one. No, <laughs> just one thing. Why not? Also, justice for Zack Snyder, a guy who made two like two kind of big bomb movies, and then was still handed the reins to fucking Superman. Like this guy has never has gotten a lot of fair. <laughs> like he's been treated pretty well. I have to say the I really Richard. Did, what did you think of the Themyscira stuff that started the movie? The like, there's a lot of boring exposition at the beginning, but I have to say, like watching those women in their like short leather kilts. Slow mo shoot arrows was pretty. pretty I was into fun. it. Um, I want a whole like prequel spinoff about Robin Wright. Yes, Robin um, Wright. Like Robin is Wright in great like in this movie. you know ancient military garb, like just kicking ass and shooting arrows yeah. and swords and stuff. And I wear, was like, yep, wearing this. amazing braids. Yeah, yeah. Robin mean, the, Wright is. Uh, you know, the, I thought. Must. I think it. I think this is kind of a spoiler, but it's interesting that Rob in in Wonder Woman, Robin Wright is playing the same character she plays. She's playing Claire Underwood. Oh, oh yeah, I mean, kind of you know, Claire Underwood, Underwood is like um, back, backstory. Yeah. So I think that's, that's she pretty is best. Claire Underwood. No, yeah, yeah. <laughs> traded um, in her power suits for breastplate, right, and right. yeah, it's, it's, um, but it's the same character. No, I thought yeah. that stuff was good. I thought it looked really nice. I think that, as is true of a lot of superhero movies, like the rules of everything. I was like, wait, why is that? You know, that that stuff kind of confused me. But um, no, I think you know, again, I think it's a solid origin movie. For I just like Mike was kind of saying with the superhero fatigue. I've just seen this movie forty times. It doesn't feel it's it's cool that it was directed by a woman and it's cool that it stars a woman. Like that's great, and I'm happy that that exists and more should exist in any genre. But it's just like ugh, I, I don't. I don't really care. It's that too much. bad the Watchmen didn't work because there are so many cool like underground comics that you yeah. could make really interesting films out of. And I feel like People that are... one experience just freaked everybody out. I actually scared. thought the movie was okay, but like because it's not following the yeah. same goddamn beats, yeah. people don't you know they don't want to play. So I don't know. I think with the exception of Doctor Strange, I think Marvel Marvel going forward is you know uh, doing fewer origin stories like i believe we are going to meet brie larson's captain marvel fully formed and i believe i mean black panther we've already met fully formed like his standalone movie is not going to be his origin story so um i think marvel at least has has caught that you know we're done with the first avenger (laughs) like all of that um but you know dc they've got you know, hopefully their Flash movie. I mean, the Flash is already fully formed. I don't want to see another Barry Allen become the Flash. If their Cyborg movie ever gets made, which I don't believe it will, I don't want to see that. Aquaman, like, is that going to be an origin? Like, uh, please don't. Like, we we know who these characters are. They, they will have already been in the Justice League. Like, just give us punching, have them punch things. It'll be great. <laughs> it's true. Yeah. That's a good point. That that's just that's just the script just reads. It, it is. It's things. the origin story that is the thing that is just I can't take. Well, it's anymore. so repetitive. I mean, I think and yeah. and and there was a lot of kind of public hue and cry about that when Batman v Superman came out, and they did another Bruce Wayne loses his parents it's while walking home from the theater in the alleyway, yeah, and, and people were like, "We have seen this now thousands of times," you know, and um. And I think that people probably listen to that and we're like, "Okay, we have to get this one Wonder Woman in, and then we're done. We promise. We're no more right. no more origins." So. 
Well, if for those of you who are sick of the same old Hollywood story, lucky for you, there's another Transformers movie coming out at the end of the month. So summer's going great. And a Spider-Man movie. So great. So now we're going to share an interview that our Hollywood correspondent and frequent Little Gold Men guest, Rebecca Keegan, did in Los Angeles with Claire Foy, who is the star of The Crown. She plays Queen Elizabeth. And Rebecca actually talked to her at this really interesting period where the news had just broken that the Queen, the real-life Queen, apparently watched The Crown and liked it. Claire Foy, maybe for her own self-preservation, because it's just kind of hard to think about the person you're playing, uh, apparently Claire Foy doesn't totally believe that the Queen has actually watched it. Uh, so you can kind of listen to her react to that news. And also some really interesting discussion about the rumors that Claire Foy might play Lisbeth Salander in another Girl with a Dragon Tattoo movie. Uh, she definitely couldn't confirm or deny anything, but uh, you can listen to her try to figure out how to respond to that too. So it's a, it's a fun conversation. So enjoy listening to Rebecca Keegan talk to Claire Foy. Hi, this is Rebecca Keegan from Vanity Fair speaking with Claire Foy from The Crown. And we are talking in a space that Netflix has built that has props and costumes from many of the shows, including some from the crown, like the giant crown you wear in the coronation episode. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you've had a chance to see any of those things. No, you I just, haven't, no. You just dropped into LA, you know, a couple yeah. hours ago. But they're downstairs, and I was curious, looking at that giant crown, what it felt like wearing it on your head. Well, weirdly, in the second series, I don't wear it at all, uh, which I've only just realized. But uh, I think when I wore it in the coronation, there was a lot of other stuff going on as well. The dress was also ginormous. And I had kind of loads of scepters and an orb (laughs) and a giant cape. Um, So it it was all and I was wearing platform shoes. And so it was all a bit too much to, to be honest. And so I just sort of just thought, I'm walking straight ahead and I'm not going to stop. And then luckily it didn't plop off my head. Does that kind of costume, I mean, the the costumes for the show are exquisite. They're mm. really incredible. Do they help you find the character? Um, I think, uh, well, um, Michelle Clapton, who did the, the costumes in the first series, uh, she really was very character-led and really was looking for the actor's input in, in how they felt. I think the thing with um, uh, Queen Elizabeth is the fact that she does have certain looks and I think her look evolved through the first series and especially evolves through the second. And I think the period, you know, the 1950s was very important. But I, I always feel more like her when I've kind of got the wellies on and the and the tartan skirts mm-hmm. and the kind of headscarf because that to me is who she really is. So mm-hmm. when she's got the big gowns on and stuff, I think she's probably quite uncomfortable in them and I am. So right. um, it sort of makes a lot of sense really. When you're playing someone who is basically made it her job to keep her her feelings to herself. She really mm. reveals so little of herself. How do you find an interior life for this person? I mean, it's not like she, you have her diaries. It's not like she did some big Oprah confessional. <laughs> <laughs> Imagine if she did. Yeah. I think uh, she's a very active person, I think, in the scenes that she's in, in her head. Mm. I think that she's constantly receiving information and trying to figure out how to receive that and turn that into an approach or an opinion or you know and um there's always people wanting something from her Mm. you know she never meets anyone and it's just a non-transactional relationship there's someone always wants something out of that meeting or that audience or whatever it is so I think she's constantly trying to gauge what her input could be and how it could be useful and how she can 
alter what she says in order to kind of um, remain impartial. Mm. Um, but I found her very much, I don't think she doesn't, she doesn't just sit there and is dead eyed. I've, I've always felt that she's very thinking character, I suppose. I w- thought it was very interesting to learn this week that she has actually apparently watched all 10 episodes. I've been told that. According Literally to a royal source. Uh, what royal source? I, well, it was in the British press, which is never wrong, as you know. I can't believe I haven't heard anything about it. And I, I, I will believe it when I see it. Is all okay, well, if we're to believe this royal source, on Saturday nights, mm-hmm. there is a Netflix and chill at Windsor Castle. <laughs> and she's seen all 10 episodes. So... If that's true, what would you make of knowing that she's seen it? Um, I mean, I I would be very interested to see what she thinks about the historical kind of elements of it. About, I think she'd be interested in the coronation. I think she would be interested in the royal wedding, and I think she would be interested in the uh, the retelling of treetops and all those sorts of things. The the personal element of it, and seeing someone else act out your life and your and act out your your most painful um, moments of grief and or happiness and or fear or triumph or whatever, I don't think would be a very enjoyable thing, which is why I doubt very much that she's watched it. Hmm. I wouldn't want to watch that. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, w- I think she would be intrigued about how well the programme is made and how well it depicts the family and, and, um, and the characters that she's uh, in real life got to know, like mm-hmm. Winston Churchill, for example. Yeah. For most people, I think it's probably the first time, well, for me, watching it, it's the first time I really thought about her as a real person mm. instead of as a figurehead. Mm, mm. What's it like to have to make a decision about your sister's yeah. romantic life? All these strange things. Mm. If you were to sit down and have lunch with her, what would you ask her? I don't think I could now. I would just cry and say, you know, um, I, I, I can't imagine what it must have been like. And, and also I know that that's not the sort of thing she'd appreciate either. She doesn't really want to be asked questions. She doesn't mm. really want to be known. Mm. So unless she sort of decided to move me into Buckingham Palace and I could become her best friend, right. which I doubt would happen, right. I don't think I'd ever be satisfied um, with with um, how much I, I could get to know her, I suppose. There are a lot of uh, women who watch this show and have sort of interesting conversations online about whether she's a feminist or not. Really? Yeah. Um, a lot of sort of websites and news organizations that are catered toward women have sort of had debates about this. And I'm curious, what do you think about that? I think you've got to view her in the first series, especially um, as a woman of her time. Um, and at that time, when she married Philip, um, she was marrying him to follow him in his career. And she knew that she would be queen one day, but she thought she had time. Um, I think it's almost too easy to say that she's a feminist icon in the sense that she had no choice in anything that has happened to her. I think the way which she has dealt with her situation, what she's had to put up with, um, how she's performed her job and also been a mother and a wife is beyond commendable and um, uh, something to be respected. Um but I, I, I don't think you can speak for someone else in that department. I don't mm-hmm. think you can say that she is a feminist or not a feminist. That's for her to decide. Mm-hmm. And um, I think as a person, regardless of her gender, she's extraordinary and, uh, and she is unique. She's entirely unique. There is no one alive today who has met more heads of state, 
more politicians, more people of, you know, kind of the arts or anything than her, mm-hmm. heads of religion than her. And there is no one with her set of skills or her knowledge of those people. It's extraordinary. And I think the world will be a very, very different place when she's no longer on the throne. Hmm. Um, One of the interesting things that you deal with in the first season is how her education was different Yeah, because she was a princess. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's interesting just to think that she missed out on some sort of crucial elements of education. What did you think about that particular part of the of the plot in her life um i think uh, it was a really funny episode actually because she had it wasn't so much that she had a desire to learn herself but that she felt she'd been let down in not being properly prepared for her job Mm. she didn't like being sat in a room full of men and not having anything to say and not understanding what they were talking about she didn't know what happened in you know um at the Battle of the Somme. She didn't know what happened. She knew about the Constitution, and that was it. And she knew some French. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, she didn't know anything about history or economics or how to form an opinion. That wasn't something that was deemed important. If she had been a prince, like Philip was, Philip was told, you know, go on, be a man, get out there and have an opinion and be involved and get out and experience the world that wasn't what was going to happen for her Mm. and it wasn't what happened for lots and lots of girls of her and women of her generation um and i think she felt deeply let down by that and also then realized when she had the choice that she didn't really want to no that wasn't something that was in her she is an outdoorsy Mm -hmm. um woman who loves being out in the countryside and riding horses and walking and being out in the fresh air and that is something that brings her great pleasure and she feels very very um connected to that she doesn't have to be all those things really um but i think she's obviously grown into that role and grown into kind of what she can and can't um do i think because she is an outdoorsy woman it means you have lots of scenes with horses and corgis Mm -hmm. um any observations on on shooting with animals well, I didn't get on a single horse. Um, not that I don't trust them. I think horses are beautiful and I love them very much. But me on horses is not a good thing. I've had too many scary episodes on horses and I just don't wish to repeat them. Um, and also she's an incredible horsewoman. And I just knew that in order to get myself into that place, it would take me about a year. Mm. And I just didn't have that time. Um, corgis um, eat cheese. <laughs> And, um, so you end up smelling a lot like cheese and, um, they're not really bred anymore because they're quite aggressive, but I love them. Right. I especially love one of them called Ella, who's great. And I love their, um, handler, Maria, but they are mad, mad dogs and really interesting that really she's the only person who breeds them. And it's just really, really odd. I wonder if they'll come back in fashion in part because of the show. I wonder. I wouldn't hold my breath. No. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I love them. Yeah. But they, they are, they are, they are an acquired taste, I think. What can you tell us about season two, which you've just finished shooting? It pretty much, um, starts where we left off. There's no real gap in time. So you find everyone at the kind of beginning of the series as they were at the end of series one. 
And then we go up to 63, 64. So we span about a kind of another seven, eight years. And it, and it's very much about, I think the first series is very much about the family and her finding her role after the, her father died and coming into her own. And this second series is very much about the outside world. And it's very much about Philip and uh, his impact on the crown and, and their marriage. And it's about Margaret and Tony Armstrong Jones. And it just feels like, there are separate worlds. It's mm. not just one world in, 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 in this series. It's very much the outside world in the 60s and kind of sex and drugs and sort of rock and roll and stuff that really you would not um, associate with the Queen of England, really. Do the Beatles make an appearance in any way? They don't. No, no. I don't think they do anyway. It would have been very hard to cast. It would. <laughs> yeah. It would. A step too far, I think. Yeah, yeah. Um, there have been... Some reports that you're in talks to play Elizabeth Salander, the character in the Stieg Larsson novels and an yeah. adaptation of them. Are you? Can you comment on that at all? No, not at all. Not Any at thoughts all. on that character and if she's of interest? I mean, she's an amazing character. Amazing. Um, I've sort of got absolutely no idea how it works about where anyone gets their information from or anything. I don't really know. But it's a lovely thing to hear. Yeah. Um, uh, but no, I mean, extraordinary character and amazing books. And um, But yeah, no, I, I, I don't know. After the second season, you'll be done with The Crown. Is that right? You're... Yeah, that, that's it. We're done. Yeah, yeah. we're done. Um, and so how do you feel about that? Oh, really sad. I mean, I've made friends for life and I've had, it's been the most extraordinary experience of my life being in this show. I just loved it. And so for it to be over is really great because we could all do with the rest, mm-hmm. but also really, really sad because it's a really special bunch of people and, and we'll always have had this experience, but also the show's going to go on without us, which I think is amazing. Mm-hmm. But it's also kind of the end of an era, really, for yeah. us anyway. The show is on Netflix, which is sort of at the center of a lot of change in the entertainment industry, the mm. way people watch and consume. Mm. Curious, how do you watch tv how do you watch movies are you someone who streams are you someone who likes to go out and see things in theaters i'm i'm a cinema girl i do love going to the cinema obviously I have a small child so mm-hmm. i never go never do <laughs> um but i'm really i love documentaries and so netflix is amazing for me because i just can just gorge and also now that you can download them so you can watch them on airplanes mm-hmm. and whenever you want i just i love that uh, and i just think there's a real in america especially there's an embracing of the idea that you can have what you want when you want it and you can, there's choice and you can watch things at your leisure. You can watch 10 episodes in one go if you want. Um, and I think that's really the way it's going to go. And I think Netflix is constantly changing and evolving, but the, the heart of what they do is that they realize the only way they'll get people to watch it is if they make incredible programs. And so that's what they do. And they make, and by doing that, what they do is they give all the control to the creatives. And that's what television program making used to be like. It didn't used to be an executive driven thing. It used to be that the director or the writer would be the creative drive of a show. And that's the way it should be. And it's the way it obviously works because it's working for them incredibly well. Mm -hmm. Because if it's good enough, they will come, I suppose, is the thing. And, um, and I think it's just the way TV and film should be made really is let the people get on with it. Well, and in the case of The Crown, you have this incredibly high production value. Mm. The budgets are, are higher than they would be for just a regular show. Mm. Can you feel that kind of production value when you're, let's say, like you, when you were shooting in South Africa and you have animals and you have this sort of grand cinematic set? 
Yeah, I mean, it definitely felt like we were shooting a film, but but that's just because of the caliber and quality of the amount of effort and time that was put into everything, and that you see everyone's work on screen. But at the same time, you couldn't have made the show on a budget; mm-hmm. it just wouldn't have worked. No, because they live in palaces and they fly on private airplanes, and they, especially at that period of time, and they get on trains and right. they. They do speeches to 600 extras. There's, there's no way of doing it. And I think that's what Netflix signed up for was to make something that was ambitious and expansive and vast. And, um, and, and, and that's what they did really. And, and you, it was, it was an interesting, it wasn't like making a TV program where, you know, you get to the, like kind of, you know, uh, 26th week of shooting and this scene start, this expensive scene start going because mm-hmm. there's no time and there's no money. And so they start cutting back and, you know, everyone when they're doing that goes on oh, a little bit of your heart dies. Right. But you just go, well, that's just what we have to do. We have to sacrifice that for this and we're just trying our best and blah, blah, blah. But with this, it, it was never like that. It was always, this isn't right, actually. This is not right. We need to make this better. Right. Um, and it was never just, oh, let's just throw some gold on the walls and, you know, anything like that. It was just always on screen. It was just amazing. Um, you're also cast opposite some incredible actors. Mm-hmm. Um, one piece of casting that was surprising to me uh, was John Lithgow as Winston Churchill. Mm-hmm. It's not totally intuitive to cast this giant American actor. Mm-hmm. Um, wh- what was he like to work with? Oh. Well, I mean, weirdly, when I heard that John was cast, I thought it was the best piece of casting I've ever heard of in years. I thought it was an extraordinary piece of casting by Nina Gold because he's a statesman. And also, it put the cat amongst the pigeons. It wasn't an Englishman who was going to be playing Winston Churchill. Mm-hmm. It was someone who was going to come to it with a fresh eye and someone who was an incredibly gifted actor but also would be coming with, you know ideas and and a different opinion and a different set of values which I think is really really important and that's what John bought and he was just the most extraordinary person to work with he never grumbles he never um, moans he's never tired he's never run down he's always excited to be at work he's always really grateful to be at work and he's always really really done his work Um, and also then he's just an amazing talking to everyone you know when you find out what he's been doing on his days off he's i've been to st petersburg and you know he's or he's been to devon or he's you know he lives every single moment to get the most out of it Mm. and i just i'm very glad that i know him i just think he's amazing amazing man what do you think is behind the enduring curiosity about the royal family um i think it's the fact they've endured i think the idea that there's this family and these group of people who've seen it all they've been there they've done that they've you know to have someone who is still living who has had a close personal relationship with winston churchill mm-hmm. and who remembers the war and who now can see how the world has changed i mean i'd love to know what she thinks about what the hell is going on mm-hmm. And I think they're a family and they are a very public family. And, you know, you look at someone like Margaret and the life that she led, you know, you couldn't make it up. These are extraordinary people living in extraordinary times and you get to view the world through their eyes in this show. And, and I think it's just a really amazing kind of thing to see, really, that you can, that you can see kind of history repeating itself in a way. Has it changed your relationship to the royal family? Yeah, well, because I didn't know them. I didn't have any sort of, like, opinion about them at all. Really? Um, previously, I just sort of was like, yeah, that's who they are, and that's who she is, and there you go. That's it. I, I didn't have any sort of kind of 
real investment in them or anything. But this is Peter Morgan's royal family. This mm-hmm. is pre- Peter Morgan's Queen Elizabeth. It's not a um, kind of biopic. Right. But I think he, he, more than he would ever know, gets it absolutely right. And I think um, it's just, uh, I think he's made an amazing bunch of characters. I just think they're extraordinary, really. I do really love the idea of her sitting and, and watching this. I know you think that that's not possibly true. I hope that she does. I think yeah. it would be fascinating. Oh, it would be it. fascinating. Maybe we should do, have you had a goggle box? Have you had a what? Have you heard of goggle box? No, we what's goggle that? Goggle box. And it's a bit of a weird British thing, but it's where you, there's a TV program where you watch people watching telly. Oh my God. Which sounds ridiculous, <laughs> but it's so entertaining. You watch people just talking at home about, oh, what she's got on and those sort of things. And it's amazing because you really see that's more interesting than the TV program. So maybe they'll do a goggle box with the Queen and Prince Charles and Prince Philip. That would be the highest rated goggle, goggle box. <laughs> goggle box. Goggle ever. box. Really of all would. time. It really would. It'd be amazing. Well, thank you very much, Claire. Oh, it's no. been a pleasure Thanks speaking for with you. you. That does it for this week's episode. Thank you for listening. Please do rate and review us on iTunes, especially if you're a European listener who really wants to chime in. I'm hoping maybe some controversy <laughs> will uh, will spark you all to, uh, to yell at us. And also leave five stars, of course. In the meantime, you can find us all at VanityFair.com. We're all on Twitter at LittleGoldMen. And on our own, I'm at Katie Rich. Richard? Rylaws. Mike? Mike underscore Hogan. And Joanna? Joe wrote this. Don't at me. <laughs> <laughs> This episode was edited and produced by Jordan Bell, and thanks to Andy Bowers at Panoply. And this week's award for the best audition for The Crown Season 2 goes to Richard Lawson. Why is there a woman in this room? <laughs> <laughs>